Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel. Yeah, we are, as you guessed, continuing with reading Jevil Herds is Another World Watching, the riddle of the flying saucers. I've got um, some nice psychedelic ambient music in the background. Sounds appropriate to ufology. UAV or UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon or Vehicle. <clears throat> so yeah, um, bit of a gap. Uh, it's the next day but still the same day because we've just gone um, into Thursday. We've just passed midnight. It's 25 minutes past. Um, just watched England vs Denmark and England beat Denmark 2-1 in extra time and now we are in the Euro final with Italy on Sunday and the nation is excited as I am to a certain degree excited for the collective but what's more exciting is diving into fascinating information well, when I say more, more for myself. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so let's go into, we're now up to chapter six. And he's going to look into, well, the subheading, or the heading of the chapter six, sorry, not subheading, is the heading. Is, are they only seen in America? Question mark. So let's see what Gerald Hurt says about that. That is one of the commonest questions of the sceptics. It is a way of suggesting that as all reports come from America, the evidence can only show two alternatives. Either America is making the craft, or Americans alone have the gusto to enjoy a super hoax. All other nations lack both the know-how and the humour. For if we aren't making these super sky cruisers, and they are really up there travelling at these unprecedented speeds, then of course they will be seen in other parts of the world. The answer to that question is quite simple. They are being seen constantly all over the world. Up to this point, we have only been examining the most significant sightings of the first three years of this invasion. And it is true that from the summer of 1947 to the summer of 1950, the best crop of well-authenticated authenticated reports did come from the United States. There were a number of viewings from Mexico, but this evidence was generally not of air pilot quality. Um, let me just put the volume down a bit on that lovely side ambient sounds, but just uh, dampen it. Yeah, just put the volume down a bit. Just dampening my voice a bit, wasn't it? It's always the case in that you put a tune on and the volume starts to go up. Anyway, so yeah, there were a number of viewings from Mexico. But this evidence was generally not of air pilot quality. 
But by the fall of 1950, the rest of the world began to give tongue in this queer chase. Let us take first the other big English-speaking country, Great Britain. From the press records and from and from com- competent correspondence, it is quite clear that as the fall came on, Britain began to experience a thorough inspection, which equaled in intensity any sort of visitation to any part of the United States. Further, we can say that the inspection, thorough as it appears, must have been far more intense than the records show. For in that island, which is the home of cloud and fog, and at the season of mists, only a small percentage of the actual lookers-in can have been noticed. But sufficient observations were made by good witnesses for us to be sure that the whole island was subjected to a sweeping study which was carried on for a number of months. Still further, and even more important to us, these sightings have added considerably to our knowledge of the craft, their speed and handling, their types and their behaviour. The viewings were so numerous that in this necessarily brief summary we shall choose only those which enlarge our information, those which fill our hints already dropped to us by our sky visitors, and also those which add completely new facts about their powers and forms. The first striking sightings did confirm those initial American cases given in the preliminary chapters, and in the two important respects as to the speed and as to the nature of these projectiles. For there is hardly a better or more consistent set of observations than those made by an object which swept in from the Atlantic one night and cruised over the greater part of southwest England. That the visit should have been by night is, of course, the first matter of interest. The object was visible because it was brightly luminous. Observers in South Pembrokeshire first sighted it at the extreme end of the Big Severn in Estuaries, Western Point Mouth, you know, the River Severn, spelled S-E-V-E-R-N. Then, successively, all along the South Wales coast, watchers reported it rushing eastward. When it reached the estuary's end at Bristol, it was tracked as it swung for a few minutes towards the north. Then it veered south and, sweeping over Somerset and Dorset, flew away over the English Channel toward France. Such a series of connected observations left no doubt that the craft was intensely luminous and of tremendous speed and was cruising on a course of selective inspection. The path it followed was certainly not that of any meteorite. The witnesses also added the further testimony which confirms the specific specificality the specific sorry, the specifically puzzling nature 
of these unidentified aerial objects. That'd be UAO, wouldn't it? They glare, they rush, but they hardly ever give a hint of sound. This silence attending such blaze and speed, as already remarked, certainly increases their eerie interest. But it would seem to indicate two possibilities. I, either they are flying so low, at least 25,000 feet, that their sound fades before it reaches us, or I, I, or, they, or their method of propulsion is such and so odd that by some unknown means they can part the air, not disturb the molecules, and thus propagate no sound. Shortly after this sighting, watchers on the opposite coast, on the east side of England at Whitby in Yorkshire, looking out to sea saw discs approaching from a clear sky and passing high overhead. Meanwhile, all over the country, observers long and generously trained to spot and recognise planes saw, both by night and day, flying discs. At night, they emitted a blue-white glare. By day, they generally appeared like gleaming silver. The most remarkable disc sighting, however, was again over a western estuary. The other of the two large inlets, which pierce the West British coast, the Solway Firth that separates South England, so separates England from Scotland. On a fine, still day, three builders employed on a housing project at Annan, A-N-N-A-N, a place on the Scottish side of the Tideway, not far from Glasgow, were taking their lunch on a small hillock, looking down on the Firth, and were watching the water. Suddenly, one of them, who had been in the Air Force during the war, drew the attention of the others to what they all thought was a jet flying upstream. A moment afterward, its terrific speed had brought it abreast of their position. The inlet is a couple of miles broad at this point. As they watched, astonished at its speed and disc shape, their surprise turned to complete amazement. But the craft suddenly dipped down toward the water. A huge splash shot up. The disc rose, and then dipping again, once more threw a wave into the air. A second time, the disc slanted up, swung easily around and rushed off south over England. This case is unique. We have seen that quite early in 1947 and 1948, there was evidence that a disc might emit a radiation that could disturb a compass needle and cause movement in treetops. Twin Falls, Idaho and Cascade Mountains, Oregon. Later in this chapter, we shall see that Geiger counters, instruments made to register discharges of shortwave radiation, have been found to increase their indicative ticking when a disc is overhead. But this case from Annan in Scotland is the only one wherein witnesses have vouched that they saw water violently thrown up by a disc's close approach. One cannot think that any object going more than 1,000 miles per hour, probably a great deal more, could have directly struck the water. 
Such an impact must shatter any structure. It is safe to assume that the same strange field of force that protects the hull of such, such craft from burning like a meteor because it's of friction with the air, also protected this disc as it dipped, perhaps to inspect the to it strange element water, perhaps to collect some of this to these visitors, precious liquid. Scotland at this time gave us another peculiar and well authenticated sighting that added to our knowledge, and which was confirmed by subsequent sightings over the United States. This fourth example was also near the sea, and, like the other two, was over an estuary near Edinburgh, the Firth of Four flows out to the North Sea. It was It is spanned by a railway line that is carried by the Fourth Bridge, famous as the first large cantilever bridge to be built. Road traffic has, however, still to cross the estuary by ferry. An Edinburgh lawyer and his family were seated in their car park, in their car parked, sorry, seated in their car parked with other automobiles waiting to be shipped across. A train was passing over the bridge. Suddenly, all of the onlookers noticed a pair of hollow rings, almost like a giant smoke rings, descend from the sky. Follow, follow the course of the train and then draw up again and out of sight. The observers were well placed to study this startling phenomenon. They had time to consider what appeared to be a leisurely scrutiny. It is hard not to think that an inspection was being made of the train going over the bridge. It is hard not to ask, but who? Not, oh, but, sorry. It is hard not to ask who but someone entirely from outside our world. Someone who had never been, had never before seen one of our locomotives, would use such strange but perfectly handled binoculars to study the apparent curiosity such a commonplace event. Britain, then, has certainly had her share, a full and varied share of sightings, and we must now turn to visitations made in other areas. Two cases from Africa, both from the centre of the no longer dark continent, are outstanding for a number of reasons. From time to time, we have had local newspaper reports of this sightings up and down the African expanse. For the most part, they were no more than random flittings, none too well witnessed. Suddenly, however, a report came to hand that certainly did not lack significance or confirmation. Leopoldsville is a small town on the Congo. It used to be unimportant and hard to get to. It isn't even now. The jet, of course, has brought it close for it, um, for it is on one of the big African north-south routes. But Leopoldville has become not merely accessible, it has become one of the most important centres on any world map. Why? Because it is the administrative centre of the district, which at present probably produces more uranium than any other spot on the world's surface. Hence, late one afternoon, as one of the work shifts was changing, there was a peculiar excitement. For hanging over pit four, 
the most productive of all the mines, the crowd of workers saw two discs. A call was put through immediately to Leopoldsville. A spitfire went up. As it approached, the discs moved out. As it approached, the discs moved off, keeping a safe distance between themselves and their chaser. They did, however, let him come close enough to enable him to report that just before they accelerated and streaked from sight, he saw their whirling rims. They were apparently of the same model as that which Dr. Cray Hunter viewed in Pennsylvania. The other African sighting is even more remarkable. Central Africa has at its heart the Matumba Mountain. That's M-I-T-U-M-B-A. So so Central Africa has at its heart the Matumba Mountain Range, on one side of which lies the Congo Basin, and on the other, the Eastern Highlands, that finally slope to the coast, where stands the point of Mombasa. From this great watershed rises Africa's highest mountain, Kilimanjaro, 19,570 feet. One morning, Captain Bicknell was flying the mail plane, the Lone Star, with nine passengers and a radio operator, northwest from Mombasa to Nairobi. It was 7am, the sun of course was behind them. The plane was above the slight ground mist. Ahead stood the white mass of the mountain. Across its southern spurs lay the air route to the upland city. Suddenly the radio operator and the captain noticed an object, which must have been vast, riding as though an anchor high above the great peak summit. Clearly some huge tubular vessel was standing stock still in the air well above 30,000 feet altitude. Captain Bicknell asked his radio officer to alert the nine passengers. They all viewed the monster craft as their plane flew toward the mountain above which it stood. There were powerful binoculars aboard the Lone Star. Everyone viewed the object through them. A motion picture camera was brought to bear on it. For 17 minutes, one of the longest sightings on record, these 11 observers, under almost ideal conditions, viewed and compared impressions of the strange, inexplicable craft. They all judged it to be a couple of hundred feet in length. In shape, it was a fit, blunt-ended tube. Its only features, for neither gondolas, ports, nor masts of any sort, broke its smooth surface were five belts or bands that gave darker stripes to its otherwise blank, shining skin. And a large fin, like a fish's tail, stood out rigidly at one end. After 17 minutes, had brought the Lone Star and its passengers apparently close enough for the tube to have satisfied its curiosity about them. It rose sharply, leaping upward like a huge arrow shot from a titanic bow at the sky's apex. And in a moment, it was gone. The usual strange sky exit, which nearly all of these visitors seemed to employ. As soon as the Lone Star landed in Nairobi, Captain Bickel made a full statement and prepared a drawing. The ten co-witnesses all vouched both 
for the incident and for the accuracy of the drawing. The film was taken by one of the passengers, a Mr. Ray Overstreet, radio operator of the USS Robin Mowbray. Mowbray, like the Mowbray Pies in England, Mowbray. The, na- the Natal Mercury, the main paper of Natal, published in the state capital of Durban, vouches that this film was shown in Durban. The account was written by the paper's shipping reporter who had viewed the film in the pretense of the two harbour pilots, Richard Morton and Albert Davis. Or Davies? Captain Morton owned that after seeing the film, though they all had been sceptical before, they were now convinced that there were such things in the air which differed from every known form of aircraft. They agreed that the object showed up quite clearly on the screen, appearing more than an inch long, as it cruised far above Kilimanjaro. These examples are, of course, only specimens, specimens chosen because they show two things. I, careful observations have been made of these mysterious craft outside of America, and two, such observations have enlarged our knowledge of their varieties. Since these African sightings, the writer has received, among many other cases, an account from Eastbourne on the south coast of Britain. It was a description by the viewers themselves of a lean, tube-like craft that repeatedly manoeuvred at great speed, high in the clear sky over the Sussex Downs, turning and twisting like a fish in a stream. This then may be the place to give at least a preliminary listing of the variety of unidentified craft that up to date uh, that up to date have come down to us from unknown source from some unknown source port or station the first type recorded in the sightings since 1947 but not as we shall see during the still earlier sporadic operations was the disc this <clears throat> is a lens shaped object with considerable variety of detail. Some seem featurelessly plain. Some are bossed like a shield with the boss in the centre. Some see the poor Trent observations have a small mast. Others a ring of single ports around the rim. Still others a rim of revolving slats or veins. V-A-N-E-S. Then there are the tubes seen over Africa and England. And by Captain Chillis, Chillis Childs, spelt C H I L E S, and his co pilot, Witted, 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 W H I T E D, see chapter 2, and by Captain W. Sperry, S P E R R Y, over Virginia, see chapter 10. Thirdly, we have the monster ship, perhaps the mother ship seen close up by Captain Mantell in the air and by hundreds of people from the ground, see chapter 3 and probably viewed also on March 22nd, 1950 at Idlewild, California, see chapter 10 Finally, there are the rings which behave like large coordinated smoke rings and which well uh, may be scanning devices Okay, and that was chapter six are they only seen in America and the answer to that is obviously not they're seen in Africa they're seen in Great Britain they're seen in Mexico 
Um, yeah. Not mentioned Australia or in Asia, but this is you know, going back in time. This you know, this was written. Well, I thought it was published in 1951, but it seems to be talking like it's in 1953, doesn't it? But fascinating stuff. Okay, thank you for listening, and uh, we will continue with chapter seven. And it says two. The title is called Two 1953. So, uh, hope you listen to that, um, and you are as engrossed as I am in is another world watching the riddle of the flying saucers.